0: Well, if you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, we are in Mark chapter 14. If you are new with us, we want to know we are so glad to have you with us, whether you're in person or you're joining us online. We are walking through the Gospel of Mark. We are at Mark 14. We are just just hours, really, from the time that Jesus is apprehended and then going to be taken to the cross. We are in Mark chapter 14. And as you turn there, you know in life you are going to have a variety of roles. I'd like you to think about just some of the roles that you currently have. Um, perhaps your role as a friend, if you're married, as a spouse, if you've got a family, as a parent, or a role as a kid, or a grandparent. And then just think of uh, roles that you might have, like if you have a career, whether you are a homemaker or a heart surgeon, whether you're a mechanic or you are a musician, a plumber, or a professor, or you're involved in some other profession, I want you to be thinking about your roles. You know, some people are just trying to kind of coast through life. And if I could give you a piece of advice, don't settle for the superficial. You want to be a person of depth, of gravitas, a person that can take the experiences of life education that you've been given and skills that you've been entrusted with to make the most of your life to be a person of of great influence to experience and have the deep experiences of life and that is true of every role but that is especially true of your role as a disciple of jesus christ god wants you to go deep in your relationship with him we understand that as Christians, you know, you know Christ has actually brought about rescue in our life. We were once lost, hopelessly so, dead in our trespasses and sins. God rescued us. He brought us salvation. We not only saw our sin and turned from it, but we trusted in Christ and we began a relationship with him. But God wants you to go deep. Inherit to the gospel is not only a rescue from sin, it is a call to relationship as one of his disciples. It's a lifelong relationship, and it goes on into eternity. But in this life, God is in the process of taking us and bringing us to a depth of maturity. And if you want to know, well, how in the world does God take a self-centered, sin-oriented person and make them Christ-centered? How does he do that? I'll give you one word. Discipleship. Discipleship is how God brings about this kind of transformation. You can think of it this way. Discipleship with Christ is how God develops depth in our lives. Now, let me give you our definition of discipleship because, after all, this is what we are called to. We're called into relationship, discipleship, with Jesus himself. And discipleship is this. It is the intentional and relational process of maturing Christ-centered believers and mobilizing them for ministry that's what discipleship is and that's what jesus is seeking to do with his people but how does he do it i mean yeah i think every person here that's a believer is like yeah i do want to be deep i would like maturity in christ in my life but how in the world does that happen that's why i'm so glad you are here today because when you look at mark chapter 14 beginning in verse 12 you're going to see exactly how how he does this. Now, you may be thinking like, you know, I've kind of read this section before. This just seems like some miscellaneous details. Um, I'm not sure exactly why this is even all that important. I want you to know that every hour before the cross is full of meaning. This particular passage we're looking at today is going to give us an inside look on how God develops his people how Jesus develops his disciples. And the first significant way that we see God bringing about depth in his people is that he is training them to take him at his word. So we pick it up here in verse 12, and it says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So just to kind of bring you up to speed here, all of Israel was to gather in Jerusalem for the Passover. In fact, there were three feasts in which the people of Israel were to gather in Jerusalem. The greatest, the Independence Day of Israel, the very first of their three major feasts was Passover. And then right after the day of Passover came the week or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was a significant event in the life of Israel because it was at the Passover that Jesus I mean, excuse me, that God actually, when he was bringing judgment upon Egypt, who would not let his people go to worship him in the desert, that on that final judgment there was to be the angel of death passing over Egypt, who would bring to death the firstborn of everyone who would not obey God at his word. And remember, they were supposed to take the sacrificed lamb, this perfect lamb, and take blood and put it on the doorpost and the lentil and when the angel of death saw that, he would pass over that home and that firstborn there would not die. If you said, I don't care about God, that doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not going to do it. There was a cost to that. There was the penalty. And so Israel then after that was freed by uh, Pharaoh. This was the most significant event. Jesus, God actually told them, I want you to sap- celebrate this as a memorial to me throughout every generation, every single year. And that's what you see taking place here. Synonymous, unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread and Passover. They would just use these terms synonymously. And that's what you see here. And so it's at this time, Jesus has now been in Jerusalem. He's been teaching at the temple. He's been taking on all comers with their trick questions. He cleansed the temple at the very beginning when he actually flipped over tables And now it is just, it's the day of Passover, this this Thursday, and Jesus' disciples are saying, you know what, (laughs) were we to actually prepare for the Passover? And I want you to think about it. There was so much involved in a Passover. So you have 10 times the number of people flooding in Jerusalem, where are you going to even meet? They generally met in family units, usually it was about two that would come together, and there was a lot of work, to be involved. Not only did every single family unit have one of these lambs, a uh, lamb with no blemish, that was actually selected four days before, but then it was to be taken on that day of Passover, it was to be uh, slaughtered, and then they would take that lamb, it would be roasted, but they also had other things that they needed to have with their lamb. They needed to make sure that they had the bitter herbs, and then the unleavened bread, And then this heroset, which was a mixture of crushed fruit and nuts. All of this needed to be prepared. Furthermore, you had to have it in a room that had been swept two days before to make sure that there was no leaven at all in the premise. Well, it's now Thursday. The Passover is just about ready to come later that night. And it seems, apart from actually having the disciples selected a Passover lamb, that nothing has been prepared and so they ask this question. Where do you want us to go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And so look what Jesus says. He, and he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And they're like, wait, wait a second here. How, how does that work? Like, wait, you want us to go into the city and we're going to see a guy carrying a pitcher, and we're just supposed to follow him and wherever he goes. And when he finally shows up at a house, we're supposed to then do this. We're going to... Say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Like, who operates like that? That, that? that doesn't make any sense. We should have been on top of details. No one functions like this. Jesus says, that's what I want you to do. And they're like taking notes like, oh, okay. And he's sending two. Luke tells us in the recording of these events that it's Peter and John. And that that in part would be because there's only two men per sacrificial lamb that could go to the temple at the Passover when you brought that lamb. And so they're taking notes of what to do. And notice he says in verse 15, as they're like totally baffled and confused, and he says, and he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us, there, he says, the owner of that house is going to show you a large upper room. Now, all of the Passover meals, that celebration, was always to take place within the walls of Jerusalem. So, if you think of it, if you have all these people coming to Jerusalem, where are you going to find rooms like that? And so, what would happen is, uh, the people that lived in Jerusalem, they would rent out their upper room, kind of the roof of their home. And people then would hold their Passovers there, and they would rent that out, and that was the practice. And in this case, he says, I want you to be looking for a man carrying a water pitcher. Now that's significant because usually it was women that actually carried water. They'd go to the fountains because hardly anyone had running water in their house. But if you were a well-to-do house, you would have both male and female servants. Male and female servants would carry water. And so it would be unique, unique enough for them to see something that they didn't usually see, follow, follow the directions, follow the guy, go to the house, meet the owner and say, the teacher, the teacher says, where shall we prepare, where's my guest room in which we may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he said, he will show you the large upper room. And notice it's going to be furnished and ready. And he says, I want you to prepare for us there. And then look at this. The disciples went out. And they came to the city. And look at this. And found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Just as he had told them. It stresses the exact fulfillment of the words of Jesus. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is taking his disciples, and he's taking them deep. You need to learn to trust me. Even if my words don't make sense to you, or you think you've got a better way of doing it, you need to learn and listen and follow what I have to say. And this is what he is teaching them to do. Now, this, by the way, is something that Jesus had been doing for some time with his disciples training them to take him at his word. Do you remember, like, when they fed the 5,000 and the 4,000? Do you remember it was, it was the disciples that were like, whoa, look at all these people. It's been a long time. They are really getting hungry, i.e., we're really getting hungry. They probably are too, but, <laughs> Jesus, it's meal time. you know? And remember Jesus said, you know, I'm going to give you some directions, have them get in groups of 50, you have them sit down. And then it was Jesus that actually supplied the miracle of the food. But then he gave it to the disciples, and the disciples passed it out to the 5,000 men, not counting all the women and children. The same with the 4,000. It was all part of the teaching process. You do as I've directed with my words. I will do the work. But you trust me and take me at my word. Remember when he sent them out to the 12, with the 12 out with the gospel of the kingdom? And then later on, he sent out the 70. Even though they're like, whoa. I mean, it's one thing for you to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to do healing. But do you mean you're going to actually do that work through us? They had to take him at his word to trust him. And they did. It was all part of the training process. In fact, a very similar event happened just four days before. Remember on that Monday in which right before Jesus comes into Jerusalem... Jesus tells two of his disciples, I want you to go and get the full of a donkey. And he tells them where to go and what to say and where will they'll find this. And so they're like, what? You want us just to walk in and, and do this? Yeah, and they did. Why was Jesus giving him these orders, these words, and putting him in these kind of situations? He was teaching them. He was training them to take him at his word. And by the way, Jesus is doing the exact same thing, even with his disciples today. He is training us to take him at his word. At at times, this this kind of you know that kind of makes sense, but sometimes it may make no sense whatsoever. Like simple words like First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18: Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. But if you're like me, there's times where I don't feel like rejoicing. Certainly don't feel like praying without ceasing or giving thanks. I'm like, I see the problems. Not super thankful here. But God has given his word. And when we take him at his word, we trust him. You know what happens? He develops depth in our lives. God calls us to love people. Did you know he's called us even to love our enemies? He's called us to be a people of forgiveness. Those who have experienced forgiveness in Christ because we're trusting in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, but those that extend forgiveness to those who hurt us, those who receive forgiveness. Why? He calls us to live according to his word, to trust him, to be a people of the book, He calls us to manifest his character, to live with integrity, to go about our jobs in such a way that we see our lives as a ministry, and we're doing all that he's called us to do and working for his glory and not our own. He's actually called us to roles. Like, for instance, if you're married, he has called you and I to live as husbands who love our wives sacrificially, wives who are going to yield to the leadership of their husbands, as as children, children who will actually honor their parents and actually obey them. We, we're actually called for, um, to live in his word and live out his word. Sometimes this makes a lot of sense, and sometimes it may seem very countercultural. But the question is, do you want to go deep? If you want to go deep with Jesus, then we learn to be trained to take him at his word there are two questions that i found to be extremely helpful and i've shared these with you before but i call them the maturity questions but the two are this it's like lord what does maturity in christ look like in this situation or this relationship ask god this and he will bring to mind scripture he may call call to mind a course of action that may be quite different than what you planned and then ask this question Lord, would you give me the grace, desire, and strength to do just that? For the disciples, you know, they're probably like wondering, like, how in this world is this going to work out? I mean, all of these people in Jerusalem, there's probably going to be absolutely no rooms available anywhere, and we're sent out to go and look for some guy carrying a water pitcher and follow him, and that doesn't make any sense. And yet they found that when they followed Jesus and did exactly as he said in his word, why Jesus had it all worked out. And I think you're going to find that as you kind of look back on your life, some of the times that were really puzzling and like, I have no idea why we're going through this or why we were in this situation, but that you were faithful, even without understanding how it all worked out, you look back and see, wow, God was not only accomplishing his work He was drawing me into deeper intimacy with himself. And if you're like me, I've got some situations that I would really love to know how God's going to work it out for his glory. Uh, Some of this doesn't make any sense to me, but I do know that I'm called to trust him. And, you know, I may at some point in my life be able to look back and say, Oh, wow, now I see how God's working it all out. But maybe not in this life but most certainly in the life to come. But you know what? I'm called to live by faith. Faith in him, faith in his word. And you know what he's doing? He's training us. He's training us to take him at his word. The disciples are robots, right? They're responding to what he says, even if it doesn't make sense. And God's taking them deeper when you look at the significant ways of how jesus develops his disciples first of all you see he's training them to take him at his word it's why we study the scriptures it's why we want to go deep so that indeed we'll flourish and reach out and we'll do so according to his word but let me show you another way that jesus actually develops his disciples and that is he is taking them deeper into his heart You may have never thought of it this way, but look at what takes place while they're eating their Passover. Verse 17, when it was evening, he came with the 12. They either meet Peter and John or um, or Peter and John are with them, but this is a reference to the group. And they come, and they're coming for the Passover. And look at verse 18, as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, and he unleashes this bombshell truly i say to you that one of you will betray me one who is eating with me he makes this statement about betrayal now let me give you a kind of a scene of what's taking place here notice they're reclining at the table At at a Passover or at a banquet, you would have a U-shaped set of tables. They'd be low-lying, and at a banquet, you would basically kind of lay down, and you'd rest on your left elbow, and you'd use your right hand for grabbing food and for dipping into different sauces. And so the host, the presider of the ceremony or the banquet, he would be at the center, so he could see everyone, and everyone could see him. And this is how they celebrated the Passover. And every single part of the Passover, all that was prepared, all was deeply enriched with meaning. So they would have that lamb that had been roasted. And it actually reminded them of the fact that a lamb was sacrificed and the blood was put on the door and the lintel on the Passover. In fact, the presider, those, the one that was actually heading up the Passover, would speak of God's great works and explain all the details of the Passover. They would have these bitter herbs and they would eat it and they would be reminded our lives were bitter, bitter as slaves in Egypt. And they would have um, the unleavened bread that would remind them, the matzah, that they had to leave in haste. And they would have the heroset, this crushed fruit and this, these nuts, and they would dip that unleavened bread in there and that, that heroset reminded them that they were bricklayers, and it reminded them of the mortar. So everything was rich of meaning. They also had developed where they actually incorporated four different cups of wine, and this actually happened later. And each one of these cups had significance. And the first cup of wine that was mixed with water would remind them of their rescue for Egypt. And that at another point of the meal, they would have another cup of wine that reminded them of their freedom from slavery. And then another cup would remind them of their redemption of God's divine power. And they would pass that cup around. And then the final cup at the very end was a cup that was reminding them of a renewed relationship with God. And it's at some point as they're going through this Passover Seder meal that Jesus then makes this announcement, this bombshell, that one of you will betray me. It would be astounding And astonishing. The word betray has the idea of handing over for punishment. Like a criminal would be handed over and it would be the moment then he would receive the punishment that he was deserving of. And Jesus says this. One of you. You see that? Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me and they began to be grieved and to say to him one by one surely not i when they said this they were hoping for a negative response and some sort of affirmation from jesus it's it's not gonna it's not me right surely not i notice one by one surely surely not i and they're saying this but you know they had to be thinking you know it could be me because if you read this account in John 13, do you remember that the Passover didn't get off to a great start? Because Jesus had to confront them on their pride and their arrogance. Do you remember uh, no one was going to wash anybody's feet because only the lowest servant would wash feet? And they were in the midst of an argument about who was the greatest. So, by all means, <laughs> I'm not washing anybody's feet because I'm trying to prove that I'm the greatest. And by doing that, I would prove that I'm not. And after all, it's all about me. And Jesus had to take the towel and the basin and the water and wash their feet. And so they were probably thinking, you know what? Pride and arrogance and self-deceit runs pretty deep in me. Could it, could it be me? Would I? Would I betray Jesus? And, you know, I'm sure they started thinking about others. I don't think I would, but I know who might. And they might be thinking different people, but one of the people they most assuredly were thinking that would never betray Jesus was one of Jesus' key guys. The guy that Jesus had selected to even be the treasurer. The guy that actually oversaw all of the finances for the disciples and for Jesus. His name, Judas Iscariot. Certainly it wouldn't be Judas because he was one of the key guys. And yet. Jesus says this, verse 20, And he said to them, It's one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. It's one of the twelve. The height of disloyalty and betrayal was seen to have a meal with someone and then turn on them. And Jesus is saying, It's one of you. Now, you're thinking like, oh, you know, Judas, he's just a monster. But I want you to think about what operates in Judas operates in us. It's sin. We are sinful, self-centered. We're like, oh, Judas, man, just raw evil. I want you to know Judas didn't come across as raw evil. He came across as competent, trusted. He had earned the respect of the other disciples. I want you to know that we all have the rebellion of sin that goes deep in us. Don't fool yourself. Don't buy into some myth that you're pretty much perfect. All that's missing in your life is just the perfect environment and you would just thrive and everything would be fine. No, the evil doesn't lie outside us so much as it lies within us. It's why we need a Savior. And Judas is in their midst. Judas had been selected by jesus and with jesus full knowledge that this would be the one who would betray him but think of it think of all the love that jesus showed judas he was there with all of the events in fact he had the esteemed position jesus selected him to be the treasurer and it's as if jesus is giving judas one final opportunity you don't need to do this you can turn you can repent You can call out to me as Savior, but you do not need to do this. And yet, as Jesus is presenting this, and I'm sure Judas is like, how in the world did Jesus know this? It's in the midst of this that Jesus is showing and sharing the depth of his heart. I've wondered, like, why is it? Why is it that there had to be a betrayer? I mean, Jesus could have gone the cross. He's fully in control of all the events, but why, why incorporate one of your 12 to be your betrayer? And I'll tell you why. It's so that Jesus would personally experience the full effects of suffering. When I say betrayal, most of us in this room have felt its sting and its pain to be turned upon you know, this is, to be turned upon is, is visceral even more than it's mental. It affects you in your body. And this event was actually prophesied. Not only does Jesus want to experience in his humanity the fullness of all suffering, but he also is fulfilling scripture. And actually, John thirteen eighteen points this out. And he quotes from Psalm 41, verse 19, 41, verse 9. Because you remember in Psalm 41, verse 9, David had a very trusted counselor, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel left David, betrayed him, and went off with Absalom in his rebellion against David and the kingdom. And it grieved and hurt David deeply. But David, writing of his experiences and giving this similar lament, gave a foreshadowing of what Jesus would experience. And it says in Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend, in whom I have trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. My trusted friend, the one that I broke bread with, you know what? He's lifted up his heel against me. He's betrayed me. You see, there's something much deeper going on than just a horrific announcement that he's going to be betrayed. What Jesus is doing is he's bringing his disciples into the depth of his heart. For them to experience the anguish of his soul. In fact, John records this in John 13, 21. He says, when Jesus had said this, he was troubled in spirit. It wasn't like, well, just a matter of fact, this is going to happen. You could see it. It was on his face. Perhaps he was even trembling a little bit. The depth of the suffering that he was starting to experience. And why did he show this? Why did he make this statement? is so that his disciples would experience a deep fellowship with him. Don't settle for the superficial. I want you to go deep. And when you think about betrayal in your own life, I mean, perhaps it was a spouse or a parent or one of your kids, or maybe you had a business partner partner, or a ministry partner, and you were in all together, everything, everything, you trusted them. You shared life together. And they hurt you deeply. They betrayed you. They, they trot, sought to actually destroy you. And maybe you think they even were successful at it. Do you know how it affected you? All the hurt and the pain and the anguish and the sorrow and the distress and the disgust and the fear. I want you to know that in the midst of that, whether you're going through it now or you're still reeling, even years later from those acts of betrayal, I want you to know there's one who understands fully, and his name is Jesus. And he invites you to come with your pain and your anguish to experience his love, his grace, his peace. That is why God calls us to trust him, to not just know about him, but to know him personally. It's why he's given us his word so for instance, like the Psalms, uh, this week I was walking with one of my daughters, actually pulling Willow in the wagon, my granddaughter, it was awesome, and uh, I was sharing with her that when I was a new believer in college, I started reading the Psalms, but you know, they were too deep for me. I was too shallow, too superficial. The experiences that are, I was reading, the expressions of devotion and praise, they were just far greater than I could really even comprehend or relate to. But it was, it's only been as a result of, of years of, of reading, of going through life and experiencing brokenness and pain and disappointment, and yes, betrayal, that the experiences that were written of, like for instance, even in the Psalms, took on a whole new meaning for me. And that's why God has given us his word. He wants us to go deep He doesn't want you to be superficial. He wants you to take your hurt, your hopes, your dreams, your pain, your anguish, and to know him like a deep, close friend. You communicate in prayer. You pour out your heart before him. And you find that God works and ministers. He gives answers and hope through his word. And he's taking us deeper. That's why he's given us his word, his spirit, and his people. So how does God bring depth and his disciples well one he's training us to take him at his word two he is actually taking us deeper into his heart and that's what he's doing here but then we give you just one more and that is he's teaching them the depth of his providence look at this statement right after jesus says it's one of you The one who dips with me in the bowl. Verse 21. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Jesus refers to himself again as the Son of Man. It was a title that he loved to use of himself. It spoke of the fullness of his humanity... But at the same time, it spoke of the fullness of his deity. It's what you see like in Daniel chapter 7. It was a messianic title, and yet it spoke of great humility. And he says this in verse 21, For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. You see, it was prophesied. This is how the Son of Man is to go to experience his death and pay the redemption price for a lost humanity. In fact, by one account, there are 330 prophecies specifically given about the Messiah. And Jesus is systematically hitting them and fulfilling them. I mean, this is beyond all probability unless you are actually the one. And indeed, he is. And it was prophesied that you are going to have a dear friend and he's going to betray you. But Jesus says, woe. It's the woe of doom. It would have been better if this individual would have never been born. But you see, God's sovereignty is seen in the nature of Scripture. God is so in control that he, he sees all things, and he knows all things, and he's working out all things, that he can have it written hundreds of years before the event takes place, which is true of even what is taking place here. But you also see in this exact same verse... God's sovereignty, but also human responsibility. Judas is fully culpable for his actions. He is the one who does this. He rejects the offer. He's the one who turns on Jesus, even with the warning, even with this being played out. It's Judas that makes the choice and the decision. And yet we also see God's sovereignty as seen in his control over the events that even in this midst, in the midst of this great act of evil, God is working out his sovereign purposes to bring about the glorious end of the redemption of his people. When you take a look at that, it leaves you almost speechless. Only God can work like that. And that's why he's given us his word. He's teaching us the depth of, of his providence he wants us to embrace it to see it to be thrilled by it to be governed by it and so friends this is what we see god is actually bringing his people to maturity jesus is bringing his disciples to greater depth and how does he do it the same way he's doing it today he's training them to take him at his word he is taking them deeper into his heart and he is teaching them the depth of the providence of who he is. And did it work? Did it? Was Jesus' plan of molding his men successful? Indeed it was. Just a short time later, you find it like in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John are apprehended. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, they are apprehended and arrested for preaching the gospel. And it says this, Now as they observe the confidence keyword that's what comes when you're a deep person confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men they hadn't gone to our schools they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus and that's true today as well are you a person that could be recognized as having been with Jesus trained taken deeper into his heart, taught the greatness of his providence. You know, I want you to know at Fellowship Bible Church, we are all about Jesus Christ. We are all about becoming a life-giving, disciple-making church. We want you to grow deep in your relationship with God. We're not after superficiality. All of our ministries, whether it be our preaching ministry, ministry with our children, students, college, all of our adult ministries, everything about us from personal discipleship to our large group gatherings to all of our life groups and small groups are designed for a purpose. And that is so that you and I will grow deep in our relationship with Christ. We will not settle for being superficial and that we are going to be reaching out with the fullness of the grace and the love of Christ. Because after all, that's what Jesus is seeking to do with his people. We're not here to entertain you. We're not here just merely to educate you. We want you to experience the depth of what it means to know Christ personally. And in my own personal journey, I see God continually working to take me deeper. Years ago, I'd only been a Christian for a few years, and when I finished college and started in the business world, I picked my church before I actually selected my job and I met with the senior pastor at Southwest Bible Church back in Beaverton, Oregon, where we're from, Scott Gilchrist, and I, I was talking with him about discipleship. His brother had mentored me my final two years in college, and he told me something that I've never forgot. He told me this, Jesus will disciple you. And just when he said it, it just like hit me, like, yeah, Jesus He's the one who's discipling and mentoring me. And I want you to know that he's been doing that for years and he continues to do it this very day. And what's true for me, friends, it's true for you. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Discipleship with Christ is how God develops depth in our lives.